You're listening to Byzantine Gospel Reflections, a podcast made possible through the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture in collaboration with the Melkite Eparchy of Newton. I'm Father Hezekiah Carnazzo, founder and director of the Institute and host for this program. In this podcast, we'll explore the historical and literary context, themes, and significance of the readings for the coming Sunday. This podcast was originally recorded as a video for the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life, come and dwell within us, cleanse us of all stain, and save our souls, O good one. Welcome back to all of our participants here for our Byzantine lectionary reflections, gospel reflections. Welcome back, everybody. Now, for the Sunday of All Saints, the Sunday following uh, the great feast of Pentecost, we have a few biblical texts to look at. Matthew chapter 10, verse 32 through 38. And then tacked onto this is chapter 19, verse 27 through 30. Chapter 19, verse 27 through 30. And then Hebrews chapter 11, verse 33, through chapter 12, verse 2. Okay, and the Prochemenon is taken from Psalm 67. Psalm 67. Okay, so let's take a look at this, everybody. Get out your Bibles, Father Sebastian. You got a Bible there? All of our podcast participants, if you're driving down the road, pull the car over so that you can get your Bible out. We can do a Bible study here together. So let's jump right in here to our gospel text. Uh, the, The Lord said to his disciples, Anyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I in turn will disown before my Father in heaven. Anyone who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and anyone who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And if anyone does not take up his cross and follow me, is not worthy of me. And then Peter addressed him, saying, Behold, we have left all and followed you, and what then shall we have? And Jesus said to them, Amen, I say to you, that you who have followed me in the, in the regeneration when the Son of Man shall sit on the throne of glory, shall also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And, and, and everyone who has left house, or brother, or sister, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my sake, shall receive a hundredfold, and shall possess life everlasting. But many who are first now will be last, and many who are last now will be first." Father Sebastian, this is probably a little difficult for you to answer, but what's the context of this gospel passage? I say it's difficult because it's two different pieces of the gospel, so you're going to have to kind of tack this together for us. Well, we will, and I think think this is actually very beneficial for us to look at that because it really does, I think, bring home the point why the lectionary is set up this way, you know, um, as uh, as I'm sure you're going to address here in a second. So in Matthew chapter 10, which is the first section, in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is sending out his disciples uh, and and letting them know that when they go out there, things are not going to go well, right? There's going to be trouble. There's going to be persecution. And and, um, 
And so he, he concludes uh, after explaining to them, giving them instructions on how they're going to operate when they get out there in the world and are spreading the gospel. He tells them, he says, this is verse 32 where our, our reading started, everyone who present tense acknowledges me before men, that is, as you're out there in the ministry, that is in the life of the church, life of the, of the Christian, I also future will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. So there's going to be a, a future eschatological uh, relationship between what's going on then and now. There's this isn't you, there's not a disconnect there, but rather it's it's equated. And so then this and this is why it's quite interesting how the lectionary then moves into a passage which is more about the end or the eschatology, where in chapter, uh, this is in chapter 19, after he talks to them about uh, eternal life and, and, um, and the, there's the rich man entering into the kingdom of heaven. It's harder than for a, a camel to go through the eye of the needle. We know the text here. And then all of a sudden, you know, Peter says, well, Lord, then, then what about us? You know, and, and Jesus says, and this is where we get our text here. Truly I say to you, in the new world or in the world to come, when the Son of Man shall sit on his glorious throne. So this is looking forward now. Those who have in the past will now. Okay, so there's, there's a connection there the lectionary is giving us, and we actually get it in both texts. Although uh, the first one is more focused on the present, and the second one is more focused on the end or the eschatological vision. It shows that there's a parallelism or relationship at least between what we do here now and what we will be doing in the future. What are we doing with what God has given us now, and what will we be doing with that in the future, and how is that going to uh, be affected? And, uh, and, and as far as the leaving father, mother, son, daughter, you've got to be careful with that. Uh, he, he's not, if you go back in the original context, you, when Jesus comes, when the, they were waiting for the, the Messiah to appear, the line of David, and there were questions the people had, the Jews had, as we read the Gospels, we see that there's these debates going on in John's Gospel. Look, you'll see that uh, the, the Sanhedrin says to Nicodemus, no prophet sh should arise from, from Galilee. You know, the Messiah is to come from Bethlehem, not Nazareth. How is this? So there are questions about him, and then some of the things he's seen and doing are not lining up exactly what the Pharisees were expecting. So there's a division among the people. Some of them think he's the Messiah, the long way to Messiah, the line of David, and they're correct, obviously. But others reject him and don't think so. And that rejection and that, that split of the people goes right down to family lines, where a husband versus a wife are going to disagree. One's going to say, Jesus is the Messiah. The other's going to say, no, he's not. I'm turning you in. And then and you've got children and parents even, or siblings, brothers and sisters, all the way down the family line. Families are divided about whether or not Jesus is the Messiah. And in that time, this meant whether or not you'd be accepted or thrown out of the synagogue, right? as we hear in John's Gospel, the story of the blind man. It, it means whether or not you're going to be handed over eventually to persecution. Think of, the, think of Stephen, what happened to him, and think of what Paul, before his conversion, was doing. So, so this, is, this was pretty serious stuff, and they had they, this came down to their... Their, their, their daily life, even their daily family life. 
Well, Father, I was, I was thinking of this, this same point about this connection. We oftentimes are looking and we apply what Jesus is saying to like this distant time to come. And, and, and we're going to get into this, by the way, regarding the epistle and who the saints are. But there's always this kind of distancing ourselves from the reality. But here it caught me when we were, we were looking at this text that Jesus talks about. He says, he, he says, amen, I say to you that you who have followed me, in the regeneration, and I think we could, we could translate that, rebirth, when the Son of Man shall sit on the throne of his glory. And of course, we've just celebrated the ascension of the Lord and his revelation of him sitting upon the throne of glory. So rather than looking at this text simply as in a kind of eschatological end of the world, second coming idea, the, the liturgy presents this mystery, that the mystery of Christ's coming and his enthronement in glory as a reality now present. And I, I mentioned a thing about regeneration and maybe a, a, a double meaning or a translation of rebirth, because we who have experienced a new birth, that is in the waters of baptism, now have a new mother and a new father and uh, a new brother, if you will. And, and so now we, are, we have been reborn into a new family. And there's, this, there's a tension here. And certainly this text could be read totally in the negative about, you know, I, almost a shunning of our relatives and so forth. It's not that. It's, that. it's that we cannot love one another if we have not first loved God, because we cannot love with authentic love unless we've been transformed by his love. So it's that the union with Christ in baptism that begins a, re, a rebirth in us by which we can then love our brothers and sisters and parents in a proper way. So it's, it, unless we're willing to, uh, as, as you said, make a choice for Christ and enter into his life, we will not truly be able to love those around us. Um, uh, of course, we're celebrating now this Feast of All Saints in this post-Pentecost time, or not even really post-Pentecost time, actually, in the octave day of Pentecost. And of course, that octave day is considered to be this kind of reliving of the reality of what took place. And so now the fruit, if you will, of Pentecost is placed before us. All of those who have done exactly what Jesus has done. And I, I was thinking about uh, a passage in St. Paul um, in, uh, in Philippians chapter 2. It's not the epistle which is given to us, but it, I think it could be a helpful bridge for us as we're considering this Sunday of all saints and this mystery of, uh, of, uh, of, of union with Christ as a way by which we might love properly. Um, it says this in chapter two of Philippians. Um, so in, in verse one, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any incentive of love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being this of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfishness or conceit, but in humility count others better than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but rather emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. Therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I point this out because we have the same mystery that we're going to encounter now in, um, in, in the epistle, but the same mystery by, that you're mentioning in this uh, choice in our life by which we oftentimes, uh, especially in those days, had to make a choice for Christ in, in, in contrast to those around us. And, uh, and this kind of way of humility and death to self that we might live for God. And here we're given this model of Christ, uh, which is a model of total self-giving love. And we're going to, again, we're going to encounter this in the epistle. All of this is then given to us as this image of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And that is to be a one who is transformed by his love, a love which pours out from the Father to the Son in the Holy Spirit from all eternity. We are now being made in his image and likeness and called to this life of self-giving love. Let's take a look, Father, at uh, Hebrews chapter 11, chapter 11, verse 33, through chapter 12, verse 2. Brethren, all of the saints by faith conquered kingdoms, wrought justice, obtained the fulfillment of promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, recovered strength from weakness, became valiant in battle, routed foreign armies, Women had their dead returned to them through resurrection. Others were tortured, refusing to yield for their release in order to obtain a better resurrection. Others again suffered mockery and beating, even chains and jailings. They were stoned. They were cut in pieces. They were put to the test. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goat and goatskins, destitute, anguished, afflicted, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts, mountains, caverns, and holes in the ground. All of these in spite of the positive witness of their faith, failed to receive what was promised, for God was keeping something better in store for us, so that they were not to reach their final perfection without us. And so having such a cloud of witnesses over us, let us get rid of every burden and of the sin entangling us, and run with endurance to the fight proposed to us, contemplating the author and final end, of faith, Jesus. Again, Father, give us the context here in the in in, uh, in the epistle to the Hebrews. Well, the the epistle to Hebrews, written by Paul to at some most likely toward the end of his life, uh, to Jewish Christians. So this is a unique epistle in the Pauline epistles because it's written primarily, as far as we're concerned, just to a, a, a area a, an area likely Judea or something like that, where you have all the Christians in that area are Jews. And they're being persecuted by, not Gentiles, but they're being persecuted by their fellow Jewish brethren who are not Christians. You could think of the, look at how, you know, this is the same exact theme we saw in Matthew chapter 10. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what was going on as we read the first couple chapters of Acts. We look at chapter 7, we can see Stephen, we can see what Paul was doing for his conversion 
the Christians there were being persecuted, the Jewish Christians being persecuted by their fellow Jews. And so as a result of that, there, there's a, uh, a fear of apostasy. And so, or there's a fear in the author that the, the audience might be uh, in danger of apostasy. And so he writes to encourage them and show them that, first of all, apostasy is not an option. He proves to them through this epistle that Jesus is the long-awaited fulfillment of all of the hopes of Israel. And then he also comes to the end of his epistle here, and he shows them, look, this is the history of, of God's people, that at every stage, those who have followed God have had to follow after him and exercise some element of faith. And sometimes, as we just read, in the midst of incredible persecution and resistance from the culture around them, even their own people. And so, uh, and so he, he lists here in this long chapter, chapter 11 is a big, long, beautiful chapter of all the examples of great faith from Adam through Noah, all the way, Abraham, all the way down to the present moment. And he says, so likewise, let us now, realizing we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, all those that have gone before us, let us run the races set before us like they did. For we know that the finish line, right, the, the end, the purpose, the fulfillment of all this is Jesus Christ, who has died and risen before us. And therefore, he is our, as the RSV has, pioneer of our, of our faith, the one who has, who has gone before. You know, let's talk about those uh, that have gone before us a little bit. Um, because because St. Paul here uses a term which may be surprising to some of our participants, and that is, number one, to talk about, here he's talking about the saints of the Old Testament. So this is number one. I'm going to ask you a question in a minute regarding his concept then of us, but that's number one, is to remember this, this idea of holiness, of, of what we call a saint in the church, is not something simply for uh, the New Testament and, and, and the life of, of the church, but this is something that is true also uh, regarding the Old Testament church, and that is this transformation and attribute of God, of, of holiness into his life. And so we can certainly pray to, and we can uh, speak of those men and women of the Old Testament who are filled with faith as, as the saints of the church, okay? That's number one. But then he says that they... Um, didn't really achieve the uh, what they were hoping for without us. And I want to just ask you this, Father, if you just uh, speak for a minute on this. Our, I think there's a uh, maybe a weakness in our concept of what it means to be a saint. Because if the saints of the Old Testament looked for their perfection in, as St. Paul says, they're not going to reach their perfection without us then how, what's his concept of those of the New Testament and those of the church today? Well, I think we need a whole other hour for that one. But let me just get started a little bit. If the word saint is it's used in the New Testament in a number of places, is usually a reference back to Daniel chapter 7, which really speaks to exactly what we're talking about today. If we can... If we want to just flip back there for a second, you know, I encourage our audiences there, as they read in the New Testament, they hear about the saints, 
any reference, look in the context right there, start circling around in that passage, and you're usually going to find some reference to suffering and victory in the end. And the reason is because the word saint is usually used in New Testament to remind the audience of Daniel chapter 7. Get here. Sorry, I was talking here. Daniel 7, where... It's in the Old Testament, Father. It's in the Old Testament. <laughs> where where uh, we hear about Daniel's vision or dream of these of the sequence of events that will, will lead from the Babylon exile to the coming of the, of the Christ and the restoration. And he has this vision that it, with these four beasts coming out of the sea, the image of, of, of kingdoms coming from the water, from the Mediterranean or from other sources of water, um, the Gentile world. So mm-hmm. coming upon the land is land of Israel. So the, the first beast is Babylon. The second beast is, is the, Medo-Persian Empire. The third beast is the Gre- the kingdom of the Greeks, and the fourth beast is the kingdom of the Romans. And during the time of the fourth kingdom, it says, then the kingdom of God will be established. Anyone who's been reading the book of Daniel knows this is parallel to the image in the dream of Nebuchadnezzar back in chapter three or chapter two. So in chapter seven, just just like you have between these kingdoms, the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, when the Medo-Persians came on the scene, the Babylonians didn't just say, hey, you know, I think it's your turn. Go ahead. Take over. No, there was a battle between the two kingdoms, and there were casualties. But eventually, the Medo-Persian Empire was victorious. When the Greeks rolled into town, the, the Persian Empire fought them off. Finally, Alexander the Great, you know, flew into the, the heart of the Persian Empire, conquered the Persians, and took over casualties on both sides. The the kingdom that was coming eventually conquered and inherited the kingdom. The the Roman Empire did the same thing. They rolled into town and and fought in little skirmishes with the remnants of the Greek kingdoms that were there. And the uh, and of course casualties. Eventually, the Romans inherited the kingdom of the Greeks. And so. What he shows is that there's going to be a battle, that when the kingdom of God comes on the scene in the midst of the Roman kingdom, just like in the other successions, there's going to be a fight. The Roman Empire is not going to just roll over and say, it's your turn. It's going to fight to hold its position, but the kingdom of God will be victorious. And so he says this in chapter 7, verse 21. He says, as I looked... This horn, this is the horn from the fourth beast, which is, represents the book of Daniel, one of the kings of the kingdom. This is Caesar, probably Nero or something. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints, there's our word, and prevailed over them. So they suffered. They died. Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints received the kingdom. And so what Daniel shows us there is that there's going to be, when the kingdom of God comes on the scene, it's not going to be just simply, you know, a new day and now we're in a new kingdom. There's going to be these battles and there's going to be the saints of the kingdom, as the saints being holy ones, God's people, the members of God's kingdom. They are going to be persecuted by the kingdom before, but they will in the end be victorious. There will be a victory. And that gives you that gives you a vision not only of the of a future eschatological moment 
but it also gives you a vision of the here and now of the life of the Christian. Absolutely. And I, there's this sense in the end of the epistle there that we're in a, we're in a real contest, right? That we're, we're running this race and we're, we're pushing toward the end. Um, and I was, I was thinking based upon what you're saying there um, and, and of the, this interesting line right at the end of the epistle uh, and run with endurance to the fight proposed to us. You know, this, there's a good, there's a good point, right? There's, there's a fight. And I, I isn't that, I mean, this is, this is, uh, you're guaranteed there is a fight for Christians. And if we're not fighting, if there's not a battle, then we may have checked into the wrong game because this is what it looks like to be a Christian. Contemplating the author and final end of faith, Jesus. Okay, so there's this, he mentioned the, the purpose or end of faith and a couple of times in this epistle. Faith is this total giving over of ourselves to the one in whom we entrust ourselves to, and namely to Jesus. And when that happens, there's a union between the two. The two, in a sense, become one flesh. This is marriage of the one who believes and the one in whom the person believes. And so the, the two become one. And, and this is what St. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. So maybe we can kind of bring this to an end here by looking at this text, uh, where he talks about the ascension of Christ here in the first few verses of the chapter. He says why Jesus ascended into heaven, okay, why he's on the, the throne of glory, as we read in the gospel account, what the result of that is in the giving of gifts in verse 11, in the sharing of his life with us. And then he says the purpose of this sharing of his life in verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the cunning of men, by their craftiness and deceitful wiles. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, to be totally transformed by his life. This is this is what the saints of the Old Testament were, were pursuing, and this is what we have received. And now we stand in the church where the kingdom of God is made present, where in a sense we can say the ancient of days is revealed to us, as you were mentioned in Daniel chapter 7, where the kingdom of God is made present, where the law of that kingdom is made real, and that law of love which Christ has given to us. And we are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. And this is why I love in the liturgy to stand and look at those icons of the saints that transform our, our church building into uh, the incarnation of the kingdom. The saints in the liturgy are standing to our right, to our left. The angels are here with us as we give glory to God. And heaven and earth now have become one. Uh, and we should do exactly what St. Paul says, and that is to gain strength through the witness of those who have come before us. They are a cloud of witnesses, and they are meant to do that very thing, to witness to us and to show us the pathway to transformation, the pathway to self-denial, that we might become, as St. Paul said, it is no longer I who live 
but it is Christ who lives in me. Uh, um, how important this Sunday is for us as a witness of our faith, as an encouragement to us now. We who have, 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 have witnessed the resurrection, have witnessed the ascension, we have witnessed the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. This Sunday of All Saints is our feast day of the saints in the church. And that are not only the ones that are depicted in the icons, but all of those gathered together to give glory to God. To him be glory both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Thank you for joining us for the Institute of Catholic Culture's Byzantine Gospel Reflections podcast. The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. I invite you to explore all we have to offer, including over 900 hours of on-demand catechetical opportunities, and sign up for our upcoming events by visiting instituteofcatholicculture.org.